Somewhere in the bowels of the city that never sleeps. Kevin McCullough, radio host with Salem Media. Is a man also not sleeping. Syndicated radio talk show host Kevin McCullough. And that guy would like a word with you. Many of you know him from as Nostradamus. Of course that Kevin show is going to be great. The only thing that could be greater, of course, would be that Donald show. But we don't have that, so we have that Kevin show. Featuring the music of Dick Tunney and the Dream in Color Orchestra. And still to come this hour on That Kevin Show, she's a civil rights attorney committed to ending Jew hatred, Brooke Goldstein. Also, he offers an oasis of hope. Dr. Francisco Contreras will also do assignment desk weekend and return to the spotlight stage, the Eras Tour with Taylor Swift. And now, from Times Square, where senior citizens would prefer to be mugged or eaten alive by pizza rats rather than accept a ride from Andrew Cuomo to a nursing home, here's that Kevin. Hey, uh, announcer Dave, did you see my pen? Can't find my pen. No, I don't want the lavender one. That's not my assignment desk weekend pen. I don't like it. Well, what'd you do with my, my good one? Okay. We'll see. Anyway. All right. Hey, welcome. Hour two underway for your weekend. I hope you do have a... Um, a very pleasant weekend this weekend. Uh, we're we're going to make sure that we get the kitties uh, to the pool at least a little bit. Uh, but uh, we've got a lot to get to. It's a very busy uh, news week. And uh, as Andrew Cuomo has been teased there, he shall make an appearance in Assignment Desk Weekend. Let's go. All right. Hot off the wires. This Thursday was a very tough day for President Biden in an attempt to merely walk to his seat after rewarding an Air Force Academy grad with his diploma. He went for a spill. Now, early on, we did not have actual footage of the of the we saw the the end result, the little tumble. But we did not receive this until just moments before the show tonight. We actually have the earpiece prompting recording of the Secret Service to uh, the Commander-in-Chief as he was on assignment there at the Air Force Academy. Let's roll the tape. Remember, like we practice, walk around, go up and say hi to the general, and then get behind the podium. Yep, upstairs, careful, careful. You know how you are with stairs. Okay, that podium, yes. Walk forward, walk forward, say hi to the general, and stop. And stop. Where where are you going? Not that general. Oh, my God. Joe, go back to the podium. Joe. Oh, my God, this is so awkward. These poor cadets. Joe, to the podium. Could you? Yeah, thank you. Direct him to the podium, please. Come on. There you go, old man. Get up there. No, the podium, you idiot. Where are you going? Oh, God. You know, I hope something happens to you later. 
a few moments later. All right, go ahead and walk off the stage now, Joe. Whoa, whoa, whoa! What happened? Did someone push you? Invisible stairs? Where? There's nothing there, Joe. Of course, the president falling down is nothing new. Uh, he is 80 years old, and he fell last year. You may remember on his bike. Uh, he was trying to go on a bike path, and gravity got very strong at one point. He fell down. They renamed it Biden Falls. Uh, so that's it, it, is, it is a little bit of a habit with him. Police have yet to find, actually, the uh, invisible uh, leprechauns that are pulling him down in all these places. I'm, I'm sure there's one behind all of it. And as if any of that wasn't bad enough, upon landing back at the White House last night, uh, he banged his head getting out of Marine One, the helicopter. Rough day. Poor guy. Taco Bell is bringing back one of their favorites, their fan favorites, the Enchirito. You remember. Upon hearing the news, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie showed his delight. The spicy delicacy is a burrito covered in enchilada sauce. Speaking of the former governor, the 2016 presidential candidate has moved closer to declaring himself an official GOP nom uh, candidate for the nomination for 2024. Because if there's one thing this race needs, it's an enchirito-laced loudmouth that nobody asked to get in. An activist in San Francisco pictured here as firefighters are attempting to rescue Governor Christie from the after effects of his first Enchirito reunion has crowdfunded an exit plan for himself from the Golden State and the city's zombie apocalypse. California Governor Gavin Newsom's office refused any assistance for the student, citing National Enchirito Day. The Royal Air Force has issued a new policy that will filter out useless white males in its flight program in an attempt to push diversity, which is very ironic since that's also the title of Prince Harry's next Netflix special, Useless White Males. Speaking of useless white males, Alec Baldwin, pictured here having just shot his director in the face, is finally wrapping up the litigation taken against him and his film called Rust for the wrongful death and injury to its production crew, which, to be honest, we're all happy about. We all really miss the old Alec who used to just berate cab drivers and delivery boys and beat paparazzi up. Glamour Magazine claims to be featuring a pregnant transgender man on its most recent cover, noted here. Also noted here, the writers and editors of Glamour Magazine failed biology. And finally, Billy Joel has announced his intention to leave New York City and thus end his 20-year residency of monthly shows at Madison Square Garden, where he's sold out every one of them for the last 20 years. But not until the icon had passed his two millionth ticket sale. Congratulations, Billy. We know you didn't start the fire. But we just couldn't let an opportunity go by to not actually try to tie as many stories as possible to Chris Christie or the Enchirito, because we can. In recent days, Governor, former Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York has attempted to rebuild his image. He's been on a radio station in New York City not once but three times trying to beg people to forgive him 
for killing 16,000 seniors in a nursing home. Or did he? New York is doing very well. This is thanks to the New Yorkers. I have some very positive news to share. Yesterday, 350 people died. Sorry, that isn't... That doesn't sound positive, but the day prior, you have to understand that more people died. So that's good. No, sorry, it's not good that more people died the day prior either. It's good that the numbers went down. So yesterday, we might call them good deaths. That's not what I meant to say. Um, I am happy that 350 people died yesterday. No, I'm happy that only 350 people Every death is bad, just to be clear. I am not supporting death at all. I'm just saying that yesterday, compared to the other day, it's good. And that is the uh, weekend news this week for your assignment desk weekend. Join us every Saturday. All right, that's Assignment Desk Weekend for this week. Kevin McCullough, glad to have you with us. Just a quick reminder, thank you to those of you who have been walking with us for the CSI campaign this year. Already, 66 human lives have been liberated from uh, human slavery, human trafficking. And uh, our goal is uh, 192. That means we've got about 126 to go. If you have not yet helped us, 888-342-1010, a one-time gift of $250 in the hands of Christian Solidarity International gives the liberated slave everything they need to start their life over again, which includes a year's worth of food, a year's worth of seed to plant new food, um, utensils to fish, garden, and cook with, uh, a Bible, uh, some blankets and some tarps and other things to help them in the various weather situations, and of course, a she-goat that makes their life full of joy and gives them a, a micro-enterprise. 888-342-1010. Kevin McCullough coming right back. Ready or not, he'll be right back. from New York, uh, Times Square, actually. Glad to have you with us and very glad to welcome my next guest, who I got to know a number of years ago when she was doing some contributing work uh, over at the Fox News Channel. And I think it was like an after party that we all ended up at the same restaurant and had a great night. And she and my bride chatted up the night and I spoke with her husband and everyone around the table got to know each other better. But it was really a great introduction for me to learn about a concept called lawfare as she is the founder and still executive director of a thing called the Lawfare Project. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together and please welcome Brooke Goldstein. 
Well, we try, we try to please and uh, good to see you again. Tell us a little bit about who Brooke is, where she came from and why she became so dedicated to the cause of what the Lawfare Project is. I think what drives me, um, I am a civil rights attorney and I am dedicated to ensuring that never again is really a reality. Mm. And, you know, we are taught, uh, the Bible teaches actually that in every generation, haters will rise up against the Jewish people. And we've seen that to be true. And what makes the difference in our destiny is not anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has existed, will always exist. Uh, What makes the difference in our destiny is our ability to fight back. And right now we are in the age of minority rights movements. And the Jewish community is the oldest, most persecuted minority community in human history. And I believe that now is the time that our civil rights are protected. Now is the time we stand up and demand equal protection under the law. And what motivates me as an attorney is to ensure through the legal system that the civil rights of the Jewish community are upheld. And unfortunately, we see civil rights violations happening, Kevin, all over the place. We see them on college campuses. We see them happening in the workplace. We just settled with a major hospital company that was engaging in disgusting anti-Semitic discrimination against its employees. Um, And we need to behave like every other minority rights community has. We need to use the legal system to engage in impact litigation to ensure our civil rights are protected. Well, and let's talk about that word specifically, because there may be a lot of people that uh, will look at that and say, hey, that looks like a merging of two two concepts, two ideas. And it kind of is. T- talk to us about the concept of what lawfare entails. So um, lawfare, as you said, is a term of art. We have media warfare. We have, um, you know, asymmetric warfare on the battlefield. And you also have the use of the law as a weapon of war lawfare as opposed to warfare. And we've seen this not just against the Jewish people, not just against the Jewish state of Israel, but we see this happening really to democracies um, where terrorists understand that they cannot defeat us in the battlefield. And a lot of the concept of terrorism, which is asymmetric warfare, where instead of engaging military um, against military, according to the so-called laws of armed conflict, if there are any, um, you know, terrorists have chosen to do things like engage in suicide, homicide bombing, okay? Use civilians as human shields. That's why they're called terrorists, target civilians. Um, and they do so because they know they will not win in traditional warfare. And so is true when it comes to lawfare, that when you cannot win on the battlefield, you use the legal system by filing frivolous and malicious lawsuits in an attempt to undermine and defeat the ability of your opponent, um, who most often is the one who adheres to the rule of law, uh, to defeat them and weaken them. You see it against Israel often with the war crimes charges, the bogus war crimes charges that were filed against Israeli officials in Belgium and Sweden and Switzerland and Canada, which attempted to, you know, impede the movement of Israeli officials. You see the International Court of Justice. You see what's happening at the United Nations with the continual 
delegitimization of Israel using legal terminology, a perversion of the legal system. And what we do is we say, you know, enough is enough. You know, we are on the defense and really, you know, the offense is where we should be because the truth is on our side. The law is on our side. We are the ones that are law abiding and we need to go to courts of law and ensure that those who are actually violating the law, engaging in civil rights abuses, engaging in violations of laws of armed conflict, uh, war crimes, those are the ones who should be held accountable. I, I want to mention the concept of this very specifically because during the Obama years, you had an administration that was very much encouraging the transplant of a lot of uh, communities from the Middle East that would be primarily anti-Semitic, and they were kind of positioned in places where they stayed together and kind of formed uh, subcultures here in America. So, for instance, the congressional district that Elon Omar represents is a Jew-hating hive of people that have just transplanted themselves from one place, not really become Americans. Uh, but now they are, they've elected a representative to echo their views in our Congress. And we have actual anti-Semitic Jew hatred uh, espoused from the well of, of the United States Congress, something that is inconceivable just a few decades ago. And yet here we are. Um, Brooke, we've only got two minutes before our first break. Just respond to the idea that that there is a subversive anti-Semitic strategy being executed in the states right now? So I, I would say a couple of things. Number one, the strategy being executed in the United States, you know, the anti-Semitism is just a symptom of a much larger problem. You have billions and billions of dollars coming in from foreign countries like Qatar, like Saudi Arabia, like Russia, like China, that are uh, being used to fund are institutions of higher education. I'm not talking about hundreds of millions, I'm talking about billions. You have memos of understanding that are being entered into with these foreign governments. Those memos of understanding are not being made public by these uh, you know, academic institutions and they're affecting the teachings that are happening on campus, whether it's anti-white, whether it's painting the Jew as the white colonial oppressor, whether it's total historical revisionism, whether it's pushing grooming on our kids, or whether it's pushing plain old anti-Semitism. I think we have a crisis in our culture right now, an existential crisis, and it's tied to foreign funding. And in terms of what you said about Ilhan Omar, Jew hatred has become systemic in the United States. I don't think that you know, like you, I never thought those words would come out of my mouth. We saw what was happening in Europe. We followed what was happening in France and, and so on. And all the French Jews, you know, making Aliyah to Israel. We thought, hey, that could never happen here in the United States, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Because if you look back at Germany, okay, in, in, in the late 1920s and early 1920s, this was the most pluralistic secular society where Jews were assimilated, integrated, and proud Germans who actually fought on the German side of World War I. And it was always the shock. How could this ever happen in Berlin? And we're repeating, unfortunately, the same thing uh, right now. I hate Holocaust analogies, but you have to look. The health of a society 10 years from now is dictated by what's being taught in the institutions, yep. the academics, and, and its hatred. Uh, she's Brooke Goldstein. I'm Kevin McCullough. We're coming right back from New York. Don't go away. Ready or not, we'll be right back. That Kevin. 
Back to that Kevin show with Kevin McCullough. And we're back. Uh, that Kevin show from New York. Glad to have you with us. Brooke Goldstein, the executive director of the Lawfare Project and also the originator of a movement called End Jew Hatred. We're going to talk about that in a second. But, Brooke, I wanted to ask you um, about the state of Israel right now. Um, what is your long-term thought about where Israel is 10, 20, 50 years from now? I hate making such long-term predictions, but I, I have wishes. I have, you know, where I would like Israel to be. First of all, I've made what we call Aliyah, and that means I've moved my family to Israel. We live here now. I'm in between Israel and New York because I truly believe that every Jew should experience what you said is the miracle of, of living in the Jewish state, which, Kevin, it's a historical anomaly. It is a true miracle in every sense of the word. We've been here now for two wars. Uh, a couple months after I arrived, we, we had 5,000 rockets being shot at us from uh, Qatar and Iran-funded and actually USA-funded terrorists, too, because they have to pay for slave program with the Palestinian Authority. And I remember being here and it was personal because now they're shooting rockets at my children. I'm just not watching this from 3000 miles away in my you know apartment right. in New York on CNN. Um, and I remember watching the coverage of the mainstream media and it was so horrific that I realized I, I, I knew this before, but it really hit home. We are alone. We are alone. The Jewish people are alone and we're making a terrible mistake. We're divided. We're divided on political partisan lines. We're divided in terms of religious, secular, orthodox. Look at the protests that are happening here in Israel. It's secular versus orthodox. It's terrible. And we need to realize that if we're going to survive, and there are existential threats that face us today, just like they did 3,000 years ago, we must unify as a people. We must be empowered. And we must express our Jewish pride in a way that we are not ashamed of. And all of our actions should be directed by that. So what is my wish for Israel 10, 20 years from now? We are a unified country. We are pluralistic in the sense we have Jews of every color, every background from all over the world, but we are unified in, in our common ethnicity, religion, and culture, and that we are proud Jews. Mm. Well, as an evangelical Christian, I wish that for you as well, as odd as that may sound. I'm grateful for uh, Israel's existence. I, I think the whole world would be so much worse off if Israel was not exactly where it is. Let me ask you about Inju Hatred. Uh, it's your latest project. Uh, there's a lot of energy behind it. I see a lot of stuff on social media. You guys are constantly in action. Um, where did it come from? And it has a, a, an edgier tone than the Lawfare Project. What's the thinking behind it? I love the terms that you used. There's so much energy behind this movement. It's unbelievable in the sense that we launched it just over two years ago. And I could, I would have never imagined how fast and quickly it's grown. And I think it just speaks to the real need for a Jewish civil rights movement. Do you know that there's never been a Jewish civil rights movement in American history? Hmm. There's been a black civil rights movement where Jews have worked. We were the lawyers. We were literally marching hand in hand, you know, for black civil rights. There's been Jews for gay rights, Jews for Asian rights, Jews for Muslim rights. There's never been a Jews for Jews movement. And, mm -hmm. and any type of Jewish advocacy has always been tied to pro-Israel advocacy, right? And, and, and what we're saying is you don't have to take a position on Israel. In fact, you don't have to be a Zionist 
to have civil rights. If you're a Jewish person, you're a minority, you deserve equal protection and civil rights. And the organic growth has been tremendous. I encourage everyone to go on Instagram, check out NGO Hatred. I have to plug my book. My book, you The NGO Hatred, a manual for mobilization, has just come out. It was actually number one a couple of weeks ago on Amazon. Uh, I think it was Judaic Studies. Please go pre-order the book. It is so important. Um, I call it the, the rules for radicals for the Jewish community because <laughs> what we're doing at the movement is what you said. It's action. We're right. not talking and complaining about anti-Semitism. It's like, how many books have been written about anti-Semitism? We still don't understand it. Because who can understand a normal person murdering you know, millions of people. Nobody can understand that, right? The banality of evil. But what we're teaching is action, how to mobilize. What are the strategies and tactics and, and how are they organized? How are other minority rights groups organized to achieve justice for the Jewish people? Because Kevin, this is the generation where we are going to end Jew hatred. And what I mean by that is that it will be no longer socially acceptable and there will be real consequences for bad behavior and real systemic change. From your lips to God's ears, and we hope and pray uh, for the same thing in that regard. Brooke Goldstein, keep up the great work. Please come back and see us a bunch here at that Kevin show, and thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for having me. Got to go order the book, End Jew Hatred, and then check her out on uh, Instagram and uh, follow the resources. They're doing a lot, especially here in the New York area. Very, very busy around the UN and other places. Go check it out. Kevin McCullough coming right back from New York. Ready or not, you'll be right back. That Kevin. Now, back to that Kevin show with Kevin McCullough. All right, my next guest uh, operate um, a place that not only is hope in name, but offers hope in a very significant way that I'm not sure any place I've ever personally uh, witnessed, uh, I, I can vouch for as much. Uh, and let me just give you a, a quick personal side to this story. There is a, a place that deals with a, a very difficult stage of people's life. And when they come there, many times they've exhausted any and all other opportunities. And the people at a place called the Oasis of Hope have been offering hope to uh, those that are struggling with cancer uh, for a, a very long time. And in fact, it was, I believe, in the mid-1980s, 85, 86, 87, somewhere in there, when my mom was diagnosed with stage three initially, and it quickly became stage four, breast cancer, uh, that we actually went and knocked on the door of this little, at that time, it was a little medical clinic in Tijuana, but it is now a full-fledged hospital uh, that is doing amazing things. And I'm so honored to have uh, Dr. Francisco Contreras uh, join us, uh, as well as Daniel Kennedy from the Oasis of Hope. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for being here. It's our honor. Thank you very much for having us. Dr. Contreras, um, in 1985, my mom was diagnosed with pretty devastating news. She had a very aggressive form of cancer, and she was told six months was about all she would be able to squeak out of life. Uh, she weighed, she was about five foot eight at the time, five foot seven and a half, something like that, weighed maybe 105 pounds soaking wet. And she did not think that chemotherapy or radiation or any of the things that she was looking at in terms of what her medical 
experts had told her she would need to do, that she would even survive those treatments, much less um, heal from the cancer. And she went on a radical journey trying to find nutrition, trying to find anything that would bolster her little body. She she suffered with uh, low blood sugar and uh, some other th- kind of contributing uh, underlying factors. But when she found out about Oasis of Hope, uh, she really did feel like she had found a genuine place that she could go and genuinely have not only her faith embraced, but find real nutrition and medical help. What has made Oasis of Hope so unique in terms of what it does in the in the world of oncology? I believe that it's, uh, you know, what my father uh, started was taking care of the whole person. Um, in, in medicine, we become mechanics of the human body and we forget that patients have emotional and spiritual needs. Um, and uh, my father just believed that that was a reason for the biggest failure especially in oncology, uh, where uh, every year more people die of cancer than the year before, in spite of all of the advances in money and brains that have been uh, uh, put uh, to to fight it. Um, And the second part, I believe, is that we uh, have this integrative approach where where not only do we have to uh, fight the cancer with all the conventional whenever that is uh, uh, helpful, but we have a, a, a tremendous amount of alternative methods that can be very helpful for the patients. You mentioned diet, and diet is a big part uh, of our third uh, our therapy. And, and so whenever we can, we will combine those. Uh, but I believe that the most powerful is that we, as you mentioned before, we, we give hope to the patients because while there's life, there's hope. In telling a patient you can go home and die because you have cancer and there's nothing else to be done, it's it's false. There's always something that that you can do for the patients. And what was what was the vision of your father in founding the Oasis? Uh, basically, the vision of my father was to provide them with spiritual support by accepting Jesus as your savior. Because even though it's important to provide patients with more life and quality, there's nothing that beats spending your eternity in heaven. That was the vision, and that continues to be the vision of the Oasis. And that can that can bring a certain degree of even wellness to the person that is seeking, you know, a solution. There is a piece of the human that has a spiritual longing that is looking for a spiritual answer. Definitely. And, and I think that that is, you know, what has continued to be missed by doctors, even Christian doctors uh, uh, at this time uh, and age. Um, and I, I truly believe that one of the reasons why our success rates are so much better than just about any other uh, oncological center in the world is because of miracles. Uh, people, once they spiritually set themselves uh, by relaxing about their future, because eternally it's been resolved by the fact that they accept Jesus Christ as their their Savior, they set themselves up for for miracles. And so we see many of those, uh, and and we have been blessed by that. Yeah. From the time when I visited the clinic, and that was a long time ago, late 19, mid-1980s, 
it was it was a small building there were a couple of attached buildings the staff was wonderful it was the same kind of spiritual emphasis and all the rest uh what oasis of hope has turned into and um for those that are watching on the on the screen uh you're you're going to see an amazing beautiful building here what, what how did this growth occur how many people are you treating each year what is what is kind of the bandwidth capacity of what you're able to do well, uh, now we treat about uh, 350 new cancer patients a year. And, 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 and so we have many, many patients because many of them survive and continue to do treatment. Uh, our staff is about 100. Uh, wow. now. So it's, it's a large enterprise, but we've worked very, very hard to maintain the, the spiritual support for our patients and that family ambience uh, that we create for the patients so that they feel that they're in this happy place and not a hospital with doom and gloom all the time. And, and, and so our patients are quite happy. Dr. Francisco Contreras, uh, I owe your father a great deal of thanks for the kindness that he showed my mom personally and for what the staff did while she was there. She did not ultimately uh, stop her cancer, but if it went from a six month prognosis to nearly three and a half years. And for us, that was incredible because when we did have to finally say goodbye, we had gotten a lot more time with her than we'd ever dreamed of. And I attribute the Oasis of Hope to that uh, directly. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. Kevin McCullough coming right back from Times Square. Don't go away. Ready or not, he'll be right back. spotlight we get to once again sneak in a little peek of what's going on from the eras tour with taylor swift
there's not been a concert tour like this in modern music, and she continues to pack out every single arena. Taylor Swift in most of those performances in full scale on YouTube. Just amazing to see what's happening. But that's a little peek behind the scenes at the Eras Tour, just in case you didn't get a ticket. Kevin McCullough, we'll see you next week.